How's everybody doing this morning? It's a good morning. I like it. And you know what? Summer's here. Like, really here. Did y'all notice summer is here? I love Texas. I was born and raised here. Now, my family, both my wife's family and my family, have roots in Colorado. So we go up to Colorado a lot and visit up there. And one of the things I discovered when I was probably about eight or nine years old is that there really are four seasons. Did y'all know that? If you grew up here, you didn't know that. I mean, they taught you that in school, but you couldn't prove it, right? Well, you know, because we have, what, three weeks of spring and about a week and a half of fall? Is that about right, you know, in Texas? But you know what? Our three weeks of spring are over and our summer is here. And I kind of like it on the one hand. And then I realize that I'm well insulated and I go outside and it's hot. So, you know, whatever. But thank you for being here this morning on a hot Sunday morning. A hot Sunday summer morning in May of all things. Can't believe it. But hey, you know what? Welcome back to we're in week four out of a five-week series from the book of James. Our series is titled, According to Jim, a study of the book of James. And we literally have just opened up the book of James and read through and gone chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We've missed a few, but for the most part, we've stayed right on track and been right in there and really studied what James has to say to us. And I think it's an important book of the Bible to study. I mean, frankly, there's 66. They're all important to study. But I like James for a lot of reasons, and I've shared some of those with you over the last few weeks. But one of the reasons I really, really enjoy digging into the book of James, James was Jesus's half-brother. James might be the only man alive who could say, I've been a Christian all my life. Because James literally, from the time James was born, followed in Jesus' footsteps. And that's what it means to be a Christian, right? To follow Jesus. And so, as his little brother, as his half-brother, James followed Jesus his entire life. And he probably, of all of the men, of all of the women who have ever lived, maybe with the exception of Joseph and Mary, James probably knew Jesus best. And I would say James might have even known Jesus better than Jesus' earthly parents, because you know if you've got siblings, you know things about your siblings that your parents never find out, right? And I know that James hanging out with Jesus all of those years because he was with him from the very beginning all the way up to Jesus's arrest, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension to be at the Father's right hand in heaven. James was there all the way. And so I think what James has to write has a lot of meaning for us who also follow Jesus. And I think it's really cool that when James wrote this book, he wrote it a little differently from some of the other men who followed closely uh, and lived with and, and just did life together with Jesus. A lot of those guys wrote what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell the story of Jesus and they teach uh, a message that was Jesus's message and it's how to have life in Christ. It's how to live eternally. It's how to be a Christian. James, Jesus's half-brother, didn't write about how to become a Christian. He wrote about how to literally be one, how to live in light of the cross of Christ, how to live a life that reflects Jesus. And he wrote it to the already convinced, to the believers in Christ, the followers of Jesus at that time. What I think is really interesting though is when he wrote this 2,000 years ago, he was writing to the church that existed at that time, but his words are just as relevant and just as applicable to us today. Let's take a look at some of the things that we've learned over the last three weeks. Last week, we opened up chapter 3 in the book of James. We opened up chapter 3, and we found some really cool stuff in chapter 3. The thing that I think got me the most out of chapter 3 is this. 
James says our words matter. There's power in our tongue. That little two-ounce muscle is the most powerful muscle in your body or mine. That little chunk of flesh right there in your mouth, the one that hurts really bad when you bite it, and we should bite it more often if we read what James wrote, because he said our tongues are powerful. Our words have weight. They have real meaning. And our tongues can either build up or they can burn down. James said our tongue is like it's on fire. And he said, consider uh, the small little spark that can light an entire forest on fire. And that's how our tongues are. They can burn people down or they can build people up. And so we decided last week from James's teaching that it's very important for us to think about the words that we say. We need to think about what comes out of our mouths. But that thinking doesn't start with your head. It starts with your heart. It starts with your heart. It starts with submitting and following Jesus and trying to get your heart in line with Jesus' heart. It's letting Jesus move in and take control of your heart, clearing out some of the stuff that needed to be cleared out, right? Because we all got some of that. And letting him take control. And from our heart, our head will change. The way that we think changes. And once the way that we think changes, we can think a lot more clearly about the words coming out of our mouth. Now, I'll be honest with you. James was real honest about it too. James said, we'll probably never master our tongues. I mean, if you mastered your tongue, you might actually be able to live a perfect life, and none of us are destined for that. We'll probably never fully master or control our tongues. This morning, I mean, I was a perfect example of that. I walked out uh, of my little back room back here where I get all the stuff ready and where we store everything, and I made a comment to somebody that I thought in my head was funny. And then when I said it and I heard it, I was like, that was not funny. That was actually inappropriate. And I hate it when I do that. And see, what happened was I didn't use my heart. I only used my head to think about it. And so what I thought was funny was inappropriate. And I owe somebody an apology. So I'm apologizing from the stage because I haven't had a chance to get back to you to apologize in person. But if you're the person that I said that to, you probably are grinning right now because you know what I said and you know how inappropriate it was. And I didn't mean to be that way. But I don't have full control of this little two-ounce muscle yet. Isn't that crazy? At 39 years old, following Jesus for 18 years, I haven't got control of this stupid little thing right here. And James said, we're probably not going to. So please forgive me, and I will try next time to use the heart and the head before the words come out of my mouth. So all that being said, great example of what James is teaching us. It's not how to become a Christ follower. It's how to follow Christ in practical application in our lives. James 3.16, he, he talks more about this. He, he starts comparing different kinds of wisdom. He talks about worldly wisdom, right? The wisdom that we get from the culture that we live in. And then he talks about biblical wisdom, the wisdom that comes from the scriptures themselves. And in James 3.16, he's writing about worldly wisdom. He says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, definitely things from worldly wisdom, right? From where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you'll find disorder and every evil practice. Worldly wisdom bears worldly fruit. So if you think about a person who's walking in worldly wisdom, they're going to generate a certain kind of lifestyle. They're on a path of worldly wisdom, and worldly wisdom will bear out for them worldly fruit. What is that fruit? It says it's, it's disorder and, and every evil practice. But a little further down in James 3, he writes, real wisdom, wisdom that comes from heaven, is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit. And so we can see worldly wisdom and, and biblical wisdom are on divergent paths, and they bear completely different kinds of fruit. 
And James continues with this thought process, with this line of thinking and teaching, as he opens up what we call chapter 4 of, of his work. So let's go ahead and dive into chapter 4 of what James says today. We're going to read verses 1 to 6. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Let's read this together. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, and so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you, you quarrel and you fight. You do not have, James says, because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scriptures say without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. We're gonna end up talking a lot about pride and humility today, but we're gonna start off talking about this whole thing with the fighting. Remember, James is writing to the church. He's writing to the already convinced followers of Jesus. And he's writing about fighting and arguing and all of this discord. Now, we just read that that kind of stuff is worldly fruit. Why are these believers reaping worldly fruit? Well, we've got to look at the, the whole context of this. The Jewish nation, going all the way back in time, has been a nation that has been at war, been at battle, been fighting both inwardly with themselves and outwardly with other cultures, other nations, all throughout the Old Testament. And then if we, as we get to the New Testament and the Christian church is born, the New Testament church is born, the infighting and the outfighting continues. You see, the, the, the infighting in the Christian church at that time, there was all kinds of different beliefs about what it meant to follow Jesus. How do you get in God's good graces in light of this guy Jesus and what he did on the cross? And, and there was different teachings and, and different theologies and methodologies and all of this stuff. And there was infighting within the church. Paul talked a lot about it in his writings. Well, I look at that. That was 2,000 years ago as the church was just being birthed. <laughs> I look around today. Not much has changed. Our culture is so funny. We think we've evolved and, and grown and we're so sophisticated and so much better than what we were years ago. And we're exactly the same today as we were 2,000 years ago. There is infighting in the church. Different denominations, there's different belief patterns. You know, well, I'm a five-point Calvinist and, you know, well, you're an Arminian and you've got all of these different things going on. And you know what? These are not heaven and hell issues. Most of these things are not heaven and hell issues. We should debate and argue the heaven and hell issues. I mean, if it's really going to decide where somebody spends eternity, let's get down and dirty. Let's get down. I mean, come on, bare knuckles. Let's go. But other than that, I think it's just infighting for infighting's sake. It's opinion. It's because we have evil desires in our hearts. It's, it's not coming up out of the spirit that indwells us. It's coming up out of the evil that still needs to be purged out of us. And so James talks about this fighting so this is no way for the church to behave. This is no way for the church to be. We attack because we don't have. We kill, we commit murder because we don't have the things that we want. See, it's not just fighting over ideas and philosophies. It's fighting over stuff. We, we, we covet what our neighbor has. We covet what somebody else has. We covet what other churches have. Who of you, when you drive up here, we've only been here for like six weeks, you don't look across the street at the village and go, dude, 
One day, I want to have what they've got. I confess, okay? I sometimes, I, you know, I would love to have what, but you know what? I'm really pretty thrilled to have what we have because I think we got the best thing going because it's a God thing. Not that theirs isn't. I, I just think for me, for us, for this church, the people he's called here, this is the thing. For those folks, that's the thing. For people that meet in other churches, that's the thing. So we don't need to be jealous of what other churches have. We don't need to be envious of what other people have. We don't need to covet their belongings. And, and then James says, you know what? You don't have the things that you want because you're too prideful to ask God for them. You don't ask the one who has the ability and the power to give those things. And if you do ask, you ask with the wrong heart. You ask so that you can have the, the selfish desires of your heart rather than so that you can do the things of God with those gifts that he might give. And I think about my, my life coming up as a, you know, a young man and, and learning a little bit about God here and there. My family didn't go to church a lot. We went just enough to make me dangerous, okay? So I remember early on, I think I shared this a couple of weeks ago, early on in my understanding of God, I thought God was like the cosmic puppet master and I was just a marionette on strings, you know, and if I did good, that was God, and if I did bad, that was God, so it really didn't matter what I did because it was all about God because I was just his little puppet and he could do what he wanted with me. I mean, I learned that um, that wasn't the way that it went somewhere along the way, you know, I, I just figured out through some teaching or whatever, that wasn't how that worked. And then I had this kind of other theology that came, this other understanding of God, probably in my like preteen years. Right, somebody had taught me, I'd heard it in Sunday school or something. You know, Sunday school in church is dangerous if you only go occasionally because you get a piece of the message and you think that's like the whole thing. And the piece that I heard this one day, if you pray in Jesus' name, what you ask for, you, you'll get that. God will give it to you if you just pray in Jesus' name. And I was like, really? I started making my Christmas list. Right? Because God is just Santa Claus at that point. If I just have to ask, and he will make it appear magically under the Christmas tree of my life, amen, I like this God. That's a childish way of thinking. And I later learned through a lot of unanswered prayers and a lot of frustration, like, I said Jesus' name when I asked for that. Why don't I have it? Right? And, and by my teenage years, I was kind of beaten down by this, and I actually took that as evidence that God didn't exist because he didn't answer my selfish prayers. Now, today I understand what the problem was. I was praying with the wrong heart. I was praying with the wrong understanding. I was making a Christmas list and praying to Santa Claus instead of praying to God. Let me ask you a question. As an adult, would you want to follow, would you want to worship a God that you could manipulate just like that? If you could just snap your fingers and say the magic phrase, the magic word, and he would do whatever you wanted, is that a God that you would want to follow. I wouldn't. That God has no power. I have the power. I'm the God in that relationship. I don't want that. That's not a Jesus I would follow. That's not a God that I would submit to. What I've learned today is this. If we will learn to put our hearts where his heart is, to align ourselves with him, if I can be more like him, in other words, I've asked the Holy Spirit to move into my life. I've asked Jesus to, to come and take over because I figured out that I don't do this thing called life too good on my own, and I need some guidance, I need some leadership, and I need it from him. He's the only one that's worth following. And if I will follow him, he lives in my heart. He'll move out some of the stuff that needs to be moved out, some of my sinful desires, make more room for him. The more room he has, the more in line I can be with his leadership and what he wants. And when I pray those things, 
When my heart's aligned with his heart and I pray that way, it's amazing the answers that I get. So we got to kind of find that place where we shift gears, where we get out of a wrong understanding or a wrong mindset about God, thinking he's Santa Claus, and begin to understand that God is God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth, the master of the universe. He's a sovereign Lord. We are to fear God, fear being astonished, reverence. We should stand, we should fall on our faces in worship to this magnificent, majestic, omnipotent, omnipresent, powerful, loving God. We can't manipulate God. We've got to follow Him. We've got to get in line with Him. We've got to worship Him. Put Him in His rightful place in our lives, which is elevated above everything else. And we submit ourselves to that, and everything changes. Let's look at, oh, oh you know what? Before I move on, let's, let's get the, the last little line there. So much power in this. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The answer to all of the, 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 the challenges, the rubs, the questions, the, the opposition of, of, of all of our, our hearts to the things of God is right there. It's the humility. It's humility. If we will humble ourselves before the God, realize that He is God, we are not. That changes everything. Verse 7, James writes, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Submission. Right off the bat, verse 7, first word, submit yourselves. When I hear the word submit today, I kind of like my whole thing with God. I have a different understanding today as I used to back a while back, years ago. Well, my understanding of submission has also changed as I have walked longer with Christ. I used to hear the word submit and I thought, meek, mild, milk toast. This is a man or a woman, a guy or a girl who has no spine, can't stand up for themselves. They are simply a doormat for others to walk on. That's what it means to submit, which gave me a really skewed view of marriage that my wife has spent years getting out of me. Just, that was funny for those of you who didn't know. Okay. I'm not that bad. No. So but I had this really weird idea of submit. I thought that it meant we had to lay down and, and have no thought process, no spine of our own, couldn't stand for anything, just the milk, toast, meek, mild. And I have a new understanding of that, and it came from the word meek. As I began to understand, or I did some research one day about what the word meek meant, I found out that the word meek in the English language means kind of that milk toast guy or girl that we talked about a second ago, but in the original language in the Greek when this book was written, that word meek, it meant a fully trained war horse. That changes everything, doesn't it? From milk toast to a fully trained war horse. A war horse was a battle tank back in the day. And a fully trained war horse, 
a meek horse. We know horses are kind of spooky creatures, right? If you've never been around horses, you've at least seen them on the movies. You know they freak out. You know, in a little, any little thing can set a horse off, make him rear up, and you know, throw you off or take off bolting across the pasture or whatever horses do when they're scared. If you've been around horses, you know the front end bites, the back end kicks, and the whole thing is dangerous and a little bit spooky. Anything can happen around a horse and set it off. Well, think about that. That spooky creature as a war horse, fully trained war horse, back in that time would charge headlong into danger. They would run full blast towards fire. Horses are freaked out by fire. If you don't believe me, go to a local stable, light a torch, wave it in front of a horse and run because they're gonna do something crazy to you. Don't do that, that's a bad idea. Horses hate fire, they're freaked out by it. But a fully trained war horse would run headlong, full steam ahead, charging into fire, charging into a mass of men, war painted up, battle armor, uh, spears and swords and the whole bit only because his rider kicked him on the flank and said let's go boy fully trained warhorse meek the meaning is different and i think about what this says and james is saying that you and i are to submit we're to be meek like a fully trained war. we're the horses they need to be trained so that when our master calls on us to charge headlong into whatever dangerous situation, whatever ministry opportunity that he has planned for us, we're ready. No matter what. Doesn't matter if it's fire. Doesn't matter if it's danger, if it's some kind of disease, if it's some kind of sinfulness, if it's spiritual warfare. Whatever he calls us to run headlong, heart first into, we're ready because we are fully submitted, fully trained, War horses for Christ. It makes me want to stick my chest out a little bit, right? Change your whole idea of what this submission, this meekness means. Submit yourselves. Be trained by God. Be shaped into the instrument of spiritual warfare that God has designed you, prepared you, and called you to be. Respond when he gives you that little kick on the flank, that little nudge, and says, let's go charge hell with some water pistols. Come on now. I like the sound of that. I'm ready for some of that action. That's what James is saying that we need to do here. We need to submit, be trained, and when we do, then we have the power to resist the temptations of the devil. We'll have the power to resist the idea that we ought to turn and run the other way away from that dangerous situation, that opportunity that we've been called to do. We can resist. We can see the devil coming. We can smell him when he's near us. We can sense his presence, and we can give him the stiff arm and soundly reject him. I like the sound of that, too. I think this submission thing is something I need to continue working out in my life, to be continuously trained and prepared to answer God's call. The second powerful concept in this block of Scripture that we just read is repentance. The first is submission. The second thing James writes about is repentance. Now, when he starts talking about living these, uh, uh, these sounds like this really sad, mournful life, he says, grieve and mourn and wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. This isn't James calling us to live, you know, like we're at a funeral every day of our lives. He's not saying that we need to just fall down and just be, oh my gosh, I'm so miserable, I'm so sad, I'm so, oh. James is saying, look, you've missed some opportunities. 
You have not been fully submitted to God, and because of that, when he's kicked you on the flank and said, charge, you went the other direction. You weren't empowered to resist yet. But now you know what you're supposed to do. You know you have this. Remember, he's writing to believers. And so what you should do, and when you realize that you've missed out on this call of God in areas of your life, you should mourn that. That should make you sad. There should be some some real feelings of regret there. But like anything else in life, when you get in a mournful situation, when somebody dies or you lose your dog or whatever happens and you, you go through a period of mourning, you can't walk in that period of mourning forever. You've got to turn around because life goes on. And you've got to re-engage real life. And James says that we should mourn, but I believe the call here is to repent. And repenting, as we've discussed several times at Elevation Church, is a military term that means about face. And I won't attempt to do one up here because there are some military men in the seats out there and I would just embarrass myself and they would have to come up and do a demonstration later to set your minds right. But it just means about face. Turn around and go the other way. So I'm going this way into my sin. I'm confronted by that sin. I now know that I have to do something different. I need to turn away from that sin. I can turn around, go the other way. As I do that, I should mourn the lost opportunities. I should mourn the, the, the loss, truly, of my own identity, my identity in Christ. You talk about identity theft today. The greatest identity thief that's ever lived is Satan, the deceiver, the father of all lies. He has deceived and, and lied and cheated so many people throughout history out of their identities in Christ, out of their identity that God gave them when he created them and planted them at a certain time, in a certain place, with certain people, with specific intent for what they needed and he wanted them to do. But they fell away because of the lies of Satan. And so now we should see those lies, repent, we should be mournful, but then we should walk away back towards God and live in that submitted life that he called us to. You can't repent if you don't submit. That's why James put submit first. You've got to submit to God so you can have the conviction about your sin, so you can see it for what it is, see through the lies of the enemy, mourn the loss, turn around and walk the other way in repentance. Whew, this is good stuff. (sighs) Verses 11 and 12. Y'all ready for this? Verses 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver. There is only one judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Ouch. There's some, wow, going on here. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Slander. Speaking ill. Here we are, back to the power of our words, the way that our tongue works. It can burn people down. Slander is when you are telling negative things about other people. It might be a true negative thing. It may have really happened. It might be a fact. But if you're telling it in a way that is going to burn them down and not build them up, you are slandering them. Slander is also if you are telling a lie that paints that person in a negative light. I hope none of us are doing that. I hope we're not lying about other people to make them look bad, sound bad, 
to others. But when we do, that little two-ounce muscle in your mouth is lighting them on fire. Slander is a sin. And James says it has no place in Christ's church. It has no place in God's people. Because the greatest commandment, part two, the second half, is love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. That's the greatest commandment. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you slander somebody, you are not loving them. And you have broken the law, he says. You have gone against the scriptures. You have placed yourself in a position above the scriptures. You have relegated the scriptures to a lower level of importance and elevated yourself to a higher level of importance. In fact, what James says, you have put yourself on par with God. You've placed yourself in his judgment seat above others and above his word. Now, I'll challenge you on this. I don't know how one can submit to somebody that is on the same plane as them. Or sometimes we even put ourselves above that judgment seat of God. How can you submit to God when you've placed yourself in God's role? See, it undermines the whole thing. Everything James has written to this point is undermined when we do this. And slander is just one example of how we do it. So James is very, he's very on purpose. He's very intentional. He's very direct with his words. He wants us to see that this stuff doesn't work. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. You've placed yourself above the word of God. It calls this double-minded. Double-minded. I don't know about you, but when I, even if I didn't know what that word meant, that phrase meant, I would not want to be described as somebody who was double-minded. At very best, it sounds like you're crazy, like you've got multiple personality disorder. And if you have that sitting in here today, we love you. I'm not calling you crazy. Please don't hear that. Because that's, I mean, that's real. I actually know somebody who has multiple personality disorder, and I love the guy. But I don't want to be described that way because that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? It sounds like you're maybe a little dangerous. And I think James has full intent of making it sound that way. Double-minded, meaning that we're living one way in one moment and another way in another. We claim Christ in one breath and we deny him in another. We represent him in one act and we, and we deny him with another act. And he says, this doesn't work. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city or that we're going to spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Folks, God is sovereign. God's sovereign. He's over everything, in charge of everything. He has a plan for everything. He has powers beyond our ability to comprehend as beautiful and wonderful and, and potent as our minds are. We cannot fathom the sovereignty of God. I can't wrap my finite brain around that. And if you can, please come and talk to me because I would love to learn more about it. But God is sovereign. He has power and control over any and everything. And yet we make plans without him. 
How feeble-minded is that? I'll admit, I'm, I'm one of the first ones. I love to plan. I'm a planner. And I will, if I know an event is coming or, or I've got something to do, uh, I will start planning that week, sometimes months in advance. And I can sometimes have it down to the minute-by-minute details, which really takes all the fun out of your event. If you're a planner like me, you know that because you've beat yourself to death over it before. But I will plan like that if I'm not careful, if I don't think about it, if I don't pray about it, if I don't get out of the way, I will plan like that. And I make plans oftentimes without consulting the Creator who has the ultimate plan, the overarching plan, the plan that encompasses everything and every body. I make my plans and then I launch some silly prayer about, okay, God, here's what I'm going to go do. Would you please bless it? What? I've made up my mind. I didn't consult you. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to do it. Now I expect you to sprinkle some magic God dust on it and make it all work. Once again, God doesn't work like that. That is the tail wagging the dog. If we could manipulate God like that, we would call him Santa Claus, dress him in a red suit, make him grow a white beard. Because that's who we're really praying to if we pray those kinds of prayers. That's who we're we're thinking God is when we make our own plans without consulting him in the process. See, what I think is this. I think if we, I think what James is saying is this, if we will, again, align our hearts, if we'll clear out some room, if we'll let the Holy Spirit in, And one by one, he will identify and convict us about our sins. And if we will address those sins, if we will submit ourselves, repent, turn away, and walk back towards God, the Holy Spirit's voice will become louder, it will become clearer, it will take up more room in our spiritual hearts. And as we make plans, we will remember to consult the one who created us and who has the overarching always perfect plan, and eventually our plans will just align with his as our heart aligns with his. And when our plans align with God's plans, when our prayers align with God's prayers, we're no longer asking him to bless what we're doing. We're doing what he has already blessed. And that is an awesome place to get to in life. And I have just begun to touch the edges sometimes, (laughs) sometimes, of of that part of of my walk with Christ. I'm still wrapping my heart, still wrapping my mind around this, still opening up space in my heart for the Holy Spirit to lead me, to guide me, to make my heart align and mesh with God's. We'll humbly submit, make His heart our heart. His plans, our plans. His will, our will. Life gets really, really good. And that whole charging hell with water pistols thing, it starts happening. We start taking territory for Christ. We start building his kingdom. We start living the way he's called us to live. We start just being who he designed us to be. We get our identity back from the ultimate identity thief. And then I love what he writes in verse 17 as he wraps this chapter up. James says, If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. If anyone knows the good that they ought to do and then doesn't do it, that is sin. 
And I have to look at myself and I have to look at you this morning and say, we're informed. James has shed light into our lives. We know now the good that we ought to do. We need to humble ourselves before God. We need to submit to His authority and be trained. We need to mourn the loss, but repent and turn back towards Him and align our hearts, our minds, and our wills with His plan. And when we do that good, when we do those good things that He's called us to do, we will be the individuals that He's designed us to be, and we will be the church that He has designed us to be. And He has specific intent for you, and He has specific intent for us, Elevation Church. And my challenge to you, James's challenge to you this morning is this. Let's do it. Let's do this. Submit, repent, and align your heart. Let's do this, and let's go be the church that he's called us to be. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for James, the half-brother of Jesus, sitting down sometime 2,000 so or so years ago and putting pen to paper, writing out his thoughts, his observations about your church, writing down what he saw the church doing that didn't align with the heart of the Jesus that he had spent his life following. Thank you, God, that he shares those thoughts with us. May we be shaped and formed. May we be changed by the word that we have heard this morning. And God, the things that we now know, the good things that we know we are to do, God, I pray that we would go do those things, that we would go be the individuals and go be the church that you've called us, prepared us, designed us, created us to be. And all of this, God, for your glory, for your kingdom, and not for our own. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.